Hey, Julie Lyon Lieberman. Thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. So I have to say, I was trying to think how to introduce you because you're such a creative force and you fulfill so many different roles in music. But I just find you so inspiring and I think in our conversation today, people will hear about your perseverance and how all these wonderful creative ideas you've come up with, you've brought to fruition and how many different angles there are for not just string players, but, but all musicians. So I often like to start with people's recent projects and we're going to come around to some exciting stuff you're doing now, but I think to put things in perspective, it's nice to start earlier. So when you were growing up studying to be a classical violinist, I know that you know you you took a fork in the road and what led to that can you talk about that my family was extremely involved in producing folk festivals booking tours for folk artists my cousins booked the boys of the loch which were the big deal before the chieftains <laughs> moved into the number one slot and um, my parents and my cousins helped found the Folk Society of Northern New Jersey. So I grew up listening to many different styles of music. We didn't call it world music back then. We called it folk music. And I didn't understand the discrepancy between going to a folk festival or folk concert and then jamming for hours and hours, if not all night afterward, and being welcomed warmly no matter what level you were performing at or playing at, everyone, it was a community. It was, everyone was welcome, no matter what age and whatever, what level of expertise. And then I'd get to school orchestra where we had no say in the music that was chosen. And I didn't like the taste of the conductor. I didn't like any single piece that he assigned. And so it felt, very squelching. It, it just did not f feel like music to me. And I gradually, by the time I got to college, um, even though none of the faculty there understood me or my path, um, my second violin teacher, William Henry, co-founder of the conductorless, the first conductorless um, chamber ensemble, the Orpheus ensemble, really understood that I had a different calling. And so he was the first person in my life who was supportive. And I had no idea where I was just exploring. And he, he constantly said that he believed in me, that I would find my path in music. And he even flew in from a, a tour in Europe to hear my senior concert, whereas none of the other music faculty showed up, but they were supposed to. And um, um, so I, I left the formal training experience behind with a tremendous distaste for the uh, condescension and narrow-mindedness and vowed to try to change that in music education. I didn't want other people to experience what I had because mm -hmm. I love music. Yeah. In, um, in your recent memoir, which we'll get into, you mentioned that you had this experience at the Philadelphia Folk Festival when you're quite young in a jam session with David Amram. It was like this moment for you. But I guess there were many more moments like that you're saying with these folk festivals. 
Yes, but that was a particularly special one because it came very early on in my experiences. And the fact that someone that famous, I had already read his autobiography in college by the time I met him, that he remembered my name having only met me earlier that day and called me into a jam session and encouraged me and coached me. And then I didn't write about this in my memoir, but afterward he invited me numerous times to sit in with him at big clubs in New York City. And that, I probably sounded awful. I don't remember what I sounded like back then, but, but it meant so much to me that someone was willing to take me under their wing and that they were encouraging me. Mm. And he is um, a rather amazing musician, kindred yeah. creative spirit. Yeah, he is. We had an opportunity to work with him once here, and I really remember that well. Um, so you're, you're a published author, 13 books, countless articles and major publications, and your very first book kind of took you down a very interesting path of research. Yeah, well, I won't tell the whole story because I wrote about that in yeah. my book, The Roaring Brook Fiddler, but uh, no one had ever paid attention in string world to the fact that the, well, first of all, every brand new style of music in America was invented by fiddlers. That, I mean, that's got to give you pause for thought, right? But most string teachers don't know this. Mm -hmm. And um, the, if we said that clarinetists were responsible for inventing so many different styles of music, we'd be like, wow, there's something going on with that instrument. But it, it was, it's our both string instrument. And the whole history of American music has, has been ignored in the in mainstream education for both string players. So researching African-American fiddling tradition in, and the fact that the style that we now call the blues was invented by African-American slaves on fiddle um, along with their vocal style, it was, a, it was a natural extension of their vocal style. That's a, that's a really big deal because the blues influenced bluegrass. Bill Monroe loved the blues and he incorporated the um, blue notes, the flat of third and the flat of fifth into his music, slide technique, things like that. Um, it, it developed into rhythm and blues, swing um, and um, pop music. All everything, you know, this picture a tree. Mm -hmm. And so the blues was at the roots. So the research was quite arduous. I sat in the Lincoln Center library where the part that was glassed in and you couldn't bring anything except a pen and a pad. You even had to check your pocketbook into a locker. And I had really good vision back then because I had to read <laughs> the minuscule print. I was looking for VLN next to every blues recording ever documented in, and they had, you know, enormous resources. Um, this took many, many weeks, if not months. Uh, I even drove down to the Library of Congress. I, I did, I researched everything I could get my hands on just to find a name here, 
a name there, a date here, a date there. And then I had to find blues collectors who actually owned these 78s. One of the amazing um, aspects of the history to this is that these players, after emancipation, the better players were able to get work for the silent films because uh, plantation owners weren't training them to play out of the kindness of their hearts. They were training them to play to make money off of them. And like Cy Gilliatt in Virginia, he played all the Virginia State balls. He was very much in demand. He did not have his freedom, but he did not do hard labor in the fields. He was highly res respected as a musician. And um, all, all of this impact on both string playing is so important to include in the education of string players, no matter what style they're, they're interested in. The first edition of the book, I had a huge section of the discography of everything ever recorded. And I was lucky enough to find two blues collectors in those days, there was no digital way of doing this. So I had a little Tanberg reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder with a little cheap mic held next to restored 78 record player. Mm -hmm. And and then my publisher, um, Oak Publications, a subsidiary of music sales, um, told me that copyright-wise, I couldn't just transcribe solos and, and publish them in the book. So I had to then rewrite everything in the style of each player. Um, they This was before CDs were included with books, even though I kept pressing that folks needed to hear stuff, they needed to have accompaniments. So when, when the publisher finally let go of the book, I published it myself with a CD, which is now on, on iTunes as well. And that has, because of the um, that recording, that has been a big sale item for me since this book came out originally in 1977, but its biggest sales were once I added the audio in of me demonstrating each tune and then you know taking it from there. Rather lengthy answer, but hopefully you covered what you were looking for. Yeah, and I have to say, you're on your website, you have these string archives, and I've been doing a deep dive into this, and it's just an amazing resource. It's like you have this amazing um, museum for us of the history, mostly of jazz violin, I would say. And you've been um, given us such a, a gift in restoring some media that would have been lost. And I watched that video you did, um, I'm just going to get this right. Yeah, video improvised, improvised, improvised violin, violin, 1988 with Leroy Jenkins yes. and Billy Bang and uh, John Blake. So, and they were talking about their, their black violinists, about just knowing that history of the early blues fiddlers and the slave violinists. It, it was very empowering just to realize, oh, this has been in our community. It's not, um, and that like that people should really watch that video. It's a really fascinating discussion between the four of you and hearing you all play as well. I'll have links to everything in the description of this interview. And um, that leads me, I was just thinking of another really amazing thing on available in the String Archives people should know about. 
you had this uh, NPR um, jazz profiles, the history of jazz violin that would have been lost, correct? Well, the first series that I produced, that was completely my idea. I wrote more grants, grant proposals yeah. than I could count, and um, eventually was able to raise the funding for a five-part series. I would not say that the series focuses, that five-part series, five hours, focuses on jazz. It focuses on improvisation by both string players. Yeah, that was separate. I meant the one. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was the first one, though, the talking violin. And um, I was lucky enough. I interviewed Dr. Billy Taylor, who was then the host of CBS Sunday Morning News jazz segment, and realized that he would be the perfect host for the series because he had played with some of our historic um, African-American jazz violinists. Mm -hmm. And I was right. He was fabulous as the um, host. The second series came about because I hired Steve Rath as my um, producer, co-producer for the first series. Mm -hmm. And because of his connections, he did the sound installation at Ellis Island. He was he did jazz at Lincoln Center, all the radio roll offs from that. He's you know, he's got a bio in radio that goes on and on and on because of his connections with NPR we were able to then get it onto NPR. This second series came because of him, and he then turned around and invited me to work on it with him. Uh, the jazz violin, jazz profiles, the what we did, the two hour, one hour shows, were a part of a very lengthy series covering each major instrument in, in jazz, um, hosted by Nancy Wilson. And you have a note on your website that those masters had been destroyed for that, um, and that you had to remaster them. Maybe um, I'm remembering this. Yeah, I, I don't remember having that posted there, but um, I have to look back at my own website. No, I think, you know, they aired it as a part of the series, as scheduled and as promoted. And they put a certain number up available for the public to listen, but our our two-part series was not included. So oh. I was able, from Steve Rath, to get copies of that and permission to put that on my website. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, obviously when you put that much work into something yeah. that I consider very important, um, you don't want it to be lost. But the talking violin I had on DAT and I was able once that became a thing of the past, I was able to get that digitized and um, and put it up on my website. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think now people just take for granted that we have this thing called YouTube, but maybe people don't realize things that might be missing. And also it's like looking for a needle in the haystack sometimes to find the best content. So um, it's just amazing to hear all these. You have so much music as part of these radio series. The inc very interesting history, but there's context for everything. So yeah. I hope people can really enjoy that. So let's go back to you as a player and also as a teacher. So coming out of um, the folk scene, how did you get into jazz and different types of imp improvisation? My sister was accepted into Berkeley College of Music. Mm -hmm. And in her freshman year, she came home. She was working on the tune Lover Man, and I really loved how that sounded. I was three years younger, so 
I, uh, I believe I was a freshman in college at that point, and there were two other musicians in the music department who were interested in jazz and were studying off campus because nothing was offered. Jazz was not offered, improvisation was not offered. I mean, it was a pretty traditional program. Um, I remember getting into an argument with a theory teacher because he said, never compose using parallel fifths. And I was like, but Stefan Grappelli does a great solo with parallel fifths. I love how it sounds, why can't I use it? And he had no answer for me, so I dropped out of the class. But <laughs> um, the... Uh, I, I have a way of weaving things in and then forgetting the main question can give it to me again. <laughs> Just how you got into jazz. Oh, and, how I got into jazz. And, and okay, so <laughs> they were studying with um, Sal Mosca off campus. And Sal Mosca was a protege of Lenny Tristano, the blind jazz pianist who founded the cool jazz movement. And so I decided to also study with him. I was the first violinist to study with him. Um, he taught the way Lenny Tristano did. The, the idea was not to improvise, letting your fingers do the walking, like what was being taught at Berklee College of Music, you know, practicing riffs over and over again and then mm -hmm. spitting them out. Riff number 432, riff number five, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I had not come up with Suzuki training and my first teacher was Samuel Applebaum. Um, it was eyes to hands. I didn't have that development of my ears and studying with Sal was a huge learning curve for me in many ways. I was not good at practicing, but he was such a stickler. One of my first assignments was to play three octave major scales in all 12 keys, then harmonic minor and melodic minor at 40 as half notes with the metronome. Why? <laughs> well, then you gradually would notch it up and notch it up. But the idea was to be able to hear before you played each note and um, to know where you were. Because it, the goal wasn't just to play a scale. The goal was how would this be of use to you when you're soloing? Mm -hmm. Now, I have invented many, many more exercises that I think are actually more useful to this. Uh, I don't teach the way he taught, uh, but he would sit smoking a cigarette, looking out the window. And when I first started, it would take me, it was a 45 minute lesson, it would probably take about 30, 35 minutes to get through this. And I think he wasn't listening to me. And then still at the window without even turning to me, he'd say, the, in the first octave of the key of D flat, your F was a little bit low. And in the and he would remember everything that I had just played. And I had never experienced anything like this. I had no idea what I had just played. I was just like moment to moment to moment to moment. So one of the things I learned without being able to define it in my mind until much later was that you know, when you're improvising, if you cannot remember what you've already played, you can't do as good a solo. Yeah. You need to be, I call it a third ear that's hanging right here with a little brain and a little mouth. And it says, you know, oh, go back to that cool idea and then put a new twist into it. Or 
Mm, you've been here before, go someplace new. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, he said to me at one point, once I picked up speed a little bit, he said, what are those funny sounds when you go up high? I said, what do you mean? I'm just playing the notes of the skit. No, I hear these funny sounds in there. And I'm racking my brains. And then finally, oh, that's when I have to shift. Um, that's common, you know. There, you make little sounds when you shift. And he said, that's not musical. Get rid of them. I said, but I don't know how. He said, I don't care. Figure it out. Don't come back to me making those sounds. So I, I called Bill Henry in New York City and went for a lesson with him and he taught me the Shumsky method of, of shifting and I was able to get rid of those sounds. <laughs> so things that my classical teachers, um, and I studied with quite a few of them, allowed mm-hmm. or criticized but didn't give me the tools to change, he caught. And that's when I learned how to practice really, really well and listen in a whole new way. I'll just interrupt you because as a violin nerd, I mean, Oscar Shumsky was a great player, but I'm curious, his method of shifting, was it just to release, like to, to make sure you release? No, it was to accordionize. This is my language. It was to accordionize. So you're getting ready. Let's say you played an F sharp, a G, and an A, mm-hmm. and then you... You need a very flexible hand, so if you have tension in your hand, you can't do this, to get the first finger behind so oh, it slips right. through the pitch you're on and then yeah. lands on where you need to go. Okay. Yeah, I've heard of that. Okay, cool. Um, and then, so finally, you you sort of pr- proceeded out of just being able to master the fingerboard to actually learning the jazz language. Yeah, well, he didn't let me work on my first jazz tune until five years in. What? You have perseverance, Julie. Wow. (laughs) Well, so did he. You weren't allowed to miss a lesson if you were sick. You know, you did a makeup. If there was a holiday, you rescheduled in advance. Mm -hmm. It was a whole different, it was a very different learning situation than what I'd been accustomed to. Uh, I we we worked on three part chords in all twelve keys, major, minor, diminished, augmented. Then we worked in four part, on four part chords, um, all seven of them of the most important through all twelve keys. It was my first experience playing in all twelve keys with ownership. Mm-hmm. You know, I had studied um, with a, a, a Romeo Tecco, who at that point had straight over from Galamian, 10 years with Galamian, when I was at Manhattan School of Music Prep Division. And yes, Galamian included work in the 12 keys, but it wasn't about listening and making it your own. It was just about playing it correctly. So you're standing and looking and following his fingering system, but that's not the same as, uh, it's a very different approach to practicing when you move from just trying to get the job done really, really well, and now I'm done and I can move on to the next exercise, to practicing such that you're listening into your own future and mm-hmm. thinking and visualizing into your own future, how is this going to apply to when I'm soloing? And how do I need to practice this to make sure that it is applicable, that it is a part of me in that deeper way? Hmm. 
And when, when you finally started to learn tunes with him, how, how did that go? And... Um, I studied with him for eight years. So we started in year five. When I left him, we had only worked on three tunes. No. Wow. Yep. I learned the chord changes. I learned to hold the root notes while singing the melody. I learned drop in, drop out on the melody, which I often teach in workshop, um, so that you you can audiate it and know where to come back in on it, like a piano roll. Mm-hmm. Um, he left no stone unturned, and some of my friends had already been with him for 23, 24 years, and continued after I left until he died. Hmm. So it sounds like you some of the lessons you learned with him you definitely keep in your own teaching. Yeah, but I don't teach it the same way yeah. because I've done such extensive study of the brain and have also witnessed the results of his teaching method in my playing and the limitations mm-hmm. as well as the assets and then saw a mirror of that with my jazz students in New York City mm-hmm. that I had to really completely revamp how I taught because I started out teaching the way he did because I didn't know any other way but then um, when you when you hear and experience certain repetitious behaviors on the instrument that don't provide new material you realize no I have to change how I approach this this is not working So I first heard of you because of your book, You Are Your Instrument, which many people will have heard of. And I have your, your old VHS tape of that as well. And it was really, really great resource uh, when I discovered it back in the, I believe it was the late 80s. When did you publish it? It came out in 1991. Okay, so yeah, early 90s. So what led you to write that book? Because it's so wonderful, it's kind of a classic, and it was new in the field. It's not like now, there's so many books on injury prevention with mindset, but I think you were the first or one of the first. Yes, I was the first, yeah. I started feeling as though I was going deaf in my, uh, it was my freshman year Hmm. at Sarah Lawrence College, and I went to an ear doctor he said, there's nothing wrong with your ears. And then I began to realize that the teacher, the final teacher I'd worked with before I left for college, who had come through the Curtis Institute, uh, Nancy Clark. Nancy Clark was good friends with Karen Tuttle because they went to Curtis Institute at the same time and used Karen Tuttle's approach to supporting the instrument, uh, which was just based on these thin pads, regardless of your body type. And that is what caused injury for me personally, though I know it's worked well for other players. My first teacher at Sarah Lawrence was Stanley Ritchie. Oh, really? Yes. I studied broke violin with him. Yeah, he, he became so injured I remember watching him perform uh, maybe halfway into my freshman year and I saw like all the stuff like like rippling across his face and his neck while he was playing. And then he described to me that he had reached a point where he couldn't even pick up a teacup without going into spasms. So he began to study Alexander technique 
And um, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's body motion with the least amount of tension and learning how to how to maneuver. Um, and he decided at the end of that year that he had he had to stop everything and really heal himself. And he's the one who chose William Henry to replace him for me. He told me that at our final lesson, that he had searched for someone who would understand. Because I, you know, we'd work on a piece of music and then I'd change some things. <laughs> no, you can't do that. You have to play it exactly as written. So he really looked around for someone who might be able to deal with me, I guess. Um, I ended up then going to his Alexander teacher, Yuta Cataloni, who had studied in London. And I realized what I was doing. He, you know, he helped me get to that point and to correct it. And then I became rather incensed because I couldn't find any literature. Of course, this was before the days of, of internet, but I searched bookstores, I asked around, you know, I, I, tr I asked people in the music department, been there for years, and nobody knew of anything. And, <laughs> well, my grandmother was the musician in my family and she had a very deep influence on me. And she had told me, if you want to see something done, you know, if you want to see something change, do it yourself. Mm -hmm. Don't wait around. So I began doing research. I taught myself about anatomy. I studied from Alexander technique to Feldenkrais to Shiatsu to acupuncture, acupressure, not formal training, but workshops. I managed to study with Moshe Feldenkrais himself before he passed away. Big imprint on me. I read all his books and I I left no stone unturned. I interviewed hand surgeons. I interviewed doctors. I, you know, I did the whole thing. When it came time to publish the book, it was turned down by 45 publishers. And I went to the then librarian for the Boston Symphony Orchestra. I thought, well, if I get endorsement quotes from, you know, mm -hmm. well-respected musicians, maybe I could get a publishing contract. And he, not being a musician, said, oh, Julie, everybody knows that to become a great musician, you pull down the shades, you close the door, and you practice and practice no matter what. And I said to him, but that's why I wrote the book. <laughs> you know, if you ignore what you're feeling, you end up paralyzed. And we, we already had... Um, two pianists who were just starting to do interviews about their paralysis. Um, mm -hmm. Leon Fleischer, I believe, who could no longer use his left hand. And then I can't remember the other pianist, but he thought it was a great idea to practice octaves instead of with the thumb and the pinky that he'd widen the span of his hands to thumb and ring finger. And he ended up absolutely unable to play. So they were just starting to make the circuit and do interviews, I think as a kind of warning, but without any tools mm -hmm. for what, what do you do now? What do I need to know? And I realized because I had such a long history of studying dance, I had gone to Connecticut College American Dance Festival a number of summers uh, when I was in my early teens and was studying in, in 
both in New Jersey and New York City, I hadn't quite made the, it's going to be music yet, right? Because uh, I was also writing plays and directing and all that before I decided that I would focus on music. I thought, you know, dancers learn everything about their bodies. Mm -hmm. You're not going to meet a dancer who says, oh, it's the ribcage that makes the jump. You know, I mean, they know what the muscles do and what to turn to and then how to take care of them if, the, if they feel anything and catch it early and all of that. And I, I thought, well, we're just as, as athletic as they are. And for us both string players, well, particularly, you know, viola and violin, we're in this asymmetrical, crazy position to play. And we know nothing. I can tell you stories, I'm not going to go into all of them, but you know, I've done playing healthy workshops throughout the United States, in Europe, and in Canada, and I've worked with thousands of injured musicians at this point. I, um, I, one of my sessions was for Manhattan School of Music, master's degree wind players. None of them knew where their diaphragm was. I won't point to some of the places they pointed to when I asked them to point. Um, I had to bite my lip to keep from laughing. Um, they had no understanding of how everything worked together to produce sound. And so those, the players that were having problems, I learned you, I didn't need to see them play or hear them play. When I do a workshop with a large group in particular, but now I even do this with individuals, I just have them mind playing because, mm -hmm. because of muscle memory, the body remembers everything. And we spend thousands of hours to get it into our motor cortices. It's called sensory engrams. I call it barcodes just to modernize it. You know, that that information, every detail of it, if you hold your breath when you're playing, that's what gets locked in. <laughs> um, the the step of teaching musicians about natural joint and muscle function and teaching teachers to ba teach based on body type using principles through an understanding of how everything works versus rules i have been trying to change that now for decades and it's still a pretty uh, pretty difficult uh, journey in that sense. So that's You Are Your Instrument and then five spin-off DVDs as I learned more and wanted to be able to mm -hmm. share the new knowledge. And your DVDs, are they available now for streaming? You can rent them on your website? Yes, I have them on um, uh, Vimeo On Demand now. Mm -hmm. So they're digitized and far less expensive because of that. And actually, I you're reminding me that I have to make links to that on my website. I've been so busy for so many years. There's a long list of things that I've been meaning to get to, but you're, you're jogging my, <laughs> I better do that. <laughs> well, I was just thinking about strings with, without boundaries, because I believe I saw that you had people can um, stream. Yes. Well, that's on strings without boundaries. Um, what what I'm referring to are my spin-off right. DVDs I, that I created separate, that I yeah. then digitized. On Strings Without Boundaries, um, once COVID hit mm -hmm. and we went online, um, 
I decided to create a video library for people to access from some of the greatest players in our country and beyond, because mm -hmm. once you're online, you can access everybody, uh, tools to, and from different vantage points, how to improvise, how to amplify, why amplify, um, mm -hmm. or why know how to do that and have that available. Uh, how to play this style, how to play that style, how to, you know, we've got over 150 videos, video tutorials now on that mm -hmm. website. That's really, really amazing. And um, I was, in terms of like how the string world is now, like it was interesting hearing that video from 1988, which I mentioned earlier in this conversation, and not necessarily the jazz world, but improvising string world. How do you think things have changed in those, you know, 30 years, 40 years? Well, there's now a deluge of players mm -hmm. who either call themselves multi-style players or jazz players or whatever. That doesn't mean that that's exactly what they are, but the fact that it has become so recognized and popular is a big deal. Mm -hmm. And I can't claim sole responsibility for that, though I think I was the first to really, you know, every which way. Mm -hmm. Um, through the NPR series, through my books, through everything. Um, many of my colleagues have had an enormous influence on the players they've reached. And some of those players have become household names, which is a big deal, you know, for a violinist to achieve that um, outside of the classical world. When I produced three jazz string summits in New York City, the press would not come the first time around. The, the second time around, I think we got a couple of piddling reviews. The third time around, weekend section of the New York Times. And that was in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. So I think that certain things have gradually, gradually shifted, but where it really needs to shift is in the universities that offer teacher training mm. certification because I work with many string teachers who say I can't teach that because I never learned how to do it and I don't accept that as an excuse you know our students can teach us actually and I have met many young players in my travels um, around the country who have come to me and said you know my teacher doesn't accept anything other than my classical studies and won't support anything else I do and is even condescending and critical about mm -hmm. anything else. I attribute that not to meanness. I believe that every string teacher is in love with music and with their instrument and means the best for their students. I feel that that comes more from a feeling of ineptitude outside of what they studied mm -hmm. and not wanting to be revealed that they don't know what to do. Uh, so I've been, you know, very actively trying to change that. And as a um, longtime um, uh, artist with Daddario Orchestral, uh, the new head really recognized the importance of this for which I'm very grateful. And so now I'm doing, they're sponsoring for, um, you know, quarterly uh, string teacher training sessions, which is how I met you. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a big deal because, 
you were at the first, the second drew 85 string teachers from around the world. And I hope to keep expanding that and I'll keep shifting the topics and, and things like that. Um, that training is really essential because first of all, when we don't embrace the cultures that our students come from and the musical tastes of our students, we lose them. I've been looking for somebody to do this research, so I'm just going to take a wild guess. But I think probably only three to five percent of students that study a boat string instrument during uh, junior high and high school or even earlier go on to continue playing. And one of the points I've I started making when I would be hired when I when an American string teacher chapter would bring me out to work with their state string teachers, I I I loved opening the session saying, imagine if you said to your students that there's two doors and they get to choose which door they want to walk through and that you have the skills to give them either. Behind door number one, this would be you telling your student this, um, you will study the, the compositions of master composers across the centuries, and you won't, probably won't remember the names of the pieces or the names of the composers, and by the time you get out of, oh, and then you'll have to compete for where you sit, and um, you'll feel bad a lot of the time because if you make a mistake, you'll you'll you know you'll just feel terrible, and then you'll be surrounded by other kids your age who will be competing with you, and some of them might be snobby toward you because I've seen this. I've worked in, I've done residencies in so many string programs, and then when you finish school, you'll never play again. Your instrument will go in the attic, and then one day you'll meet somebody and you'll say, oh, are you an active player? Oh, I, I kind of wish I'd continued, but I haven't. Behind door number two, you'll be a member of a community that will welcome you no matter, I'm sorry, my dog is so loud right now, it isn't usually. Um, you'll become a member of a community that will welcome where at whatever level you're on and you'll get to learn from people who by playing with them who are far more experienced than you and then help people who are less experienced than you and you will play your entire life and love it and enjoy it and and make friends through it which door would you like mm -hmm. nobody's yeah. ever argued with me about that but yeah but 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 but, but but they didn't have the tools to offer door number two. And I'll include in door number two, you'll still learn the music of, you know, through this out the centuries and blah, 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 blah. It still can be a part of that. And one is, you know, nothing's mutually exclusive. Right. So um, I'm, I'm mindful of our time together. And there's two things I definitely want to cover. One of them is the way you sing while you play is so powerful. And so it feels so spontaneous. And sometimes you sing in unison and sometimes you do something completely different. When did you start doing that? And, and what was that process for you? Um, I, I wrote poems as a child starting at like age six. Mm -hmm. And that naturally morphed into composing songs. Mm -hmm. And so I had the schism, me as the studying classical violin, and then me as um, a as a composer, but originally as a composer for, for 
for mm-hmm. songs, right? Um, and somehow they just started, you know, if, if you don't have access to a band, how are you going to accompany yourself? And so you write something and then you're like, okay, you know, what can I do here? and then you go on and sing and you've got this going on and so being able to coordinate that took a lot of work um, and to be able to three, free up my throat experimenting with my setup system so that I had lots of flexibility and could go um, this I learned from studying mime he said he moved to Steinway grand piano when nobody was there nine foot by shaking it and then it easily moved across the stage and I thought oh wait a minute, if I keep rotating the responsibility of the instrument, nothing gets tight or stiff. And when singing, there'll be points where I could go like that, which is not good, it leads to tendonitis, but for a moment, it's fine. And um, other points where, you know, the hands take over and then points where I free up my neck to sing and, and all of that. So I called that the triangle of weightlessness in my Violin in Motion DVD. So do you have any final um, words of advice for, for players coming up? Yes. When people tell you that your ideas are not valid and that you should go the, the, um, the pathway that's already carved out, but you're hearing a different drumbeat, follow your heart and soul because this is your life. And I've always said that when I reach the final moments of my life, I don't want to look back with any regrets about anything. I want to be able to look back and say that I created everything that was important to me. And uh, this idea of you're supposed to do something that's distasteful for you so that later on when you retire or later on in your life, you can get to the things that you really want to do. I don't abide by that. Yes, the going is harder when you are making your own pathway through the woods that never had a path. Mm -hmm. But it's so deeply satisfying. And you then feel whole about what you came here in this lifetime to do. Beautifully expressed. Thanks. Thanks for that. This is a tune that I learned from an Italian group with a French name, though, for the tune, Le Trois Rigodons, The Three Dances, uh, but played Julie style. It's in 4-4 four, four time, but I have created a accompaniment that is in 3-3-2. Three, three, and I play the melody, and then I improvise over it, and then come back to the melody.
This is a jazz tune, a standard, called You'd Be So Nice to Come Home To. And after playing the melody, then I go on an unplanned venture, improvising across the tune, weaving in voice and violin. Thank you. 
Thank you so much. I have to say, um, at our wedding, which was held outside, uh, You'd Be So Nice to Come Home To was played by Brass Quartet, and my husband, Mark, made the arrangement for them. So that's a very Oh my goodness. 
I, you know, I was going through all my tunes trying to figure out what to do, and that's that's my uh, my my uh, Julie's whiskers, I guess. Because <laughs> what are the chances of my choosing a tune yeah. that you used for your wedding? I love it. Uh, well, it's been really inspiring getting to meet you and, and hearing about uh, some of your many projects. So um, thank you very much. Thank you for what you're doing. Appreciate it very much for the opportunity.